Welcome back to Money Minutes for Doctors. Once again, I'm your host, Christina McAteer, and have the pleasure of welcoming our guest, Catherine Vestness. How are you today, Catherine? Another lovely day, and I'm very excited to help our doctors get a little more sense of relief about their financial issues. Wonderful. Well, last session we covered contracts for our doctors negotiating their first job or maybe even a second career option. And I didn't want to cut it short. There was just so much great content that we're bringing it back for a second session so that our doctors have all the tips and tools they need to successfully negotiate their next contract. I think that's a great plan. And let's face it, the doctors need help in this area. All right. What have you got for us next, Catherine? All right. Liquidated damages. Now, this is a concept you almost never see the words liquidated damages in a contract, but I want to explain to you what it is because this is probably the biggest gotcha uh, in any of these contracts. So in liquidated damages, you have an agreement in the contract that says if the doctor breaches the contract, by the way, I've never, ever seen the provisions run the other way that if the employer breaches the contract, but if the doctors breach the contract, the parties agree in writing that the doctor is going to owe the employer X number of dollars. Why is this a deal? I had this lovely doctor, moved. she wanted to move to North Carolina. She showed me this contract. It was a small office, and it had a liquidated damages provisions in it. Now, what she, the other part about the contract that I knew just reading the contract, she obviously this was not her area of expertise. I wouldn't have expected her to know this, but I could tell the tone of the contract was the employer had written this so tight that it was going to be impossible for my client at some point not to violate the contract. Does that make sense? It was that onerous, a contract. She was going to do something minor and it was going to violate the contract. Interesting. Yeah. Well, hello. When you read the fine print, the liquidated damages clause was $850,000. If she violated this contract, she was going to owe that employer eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars and that was christy three years of her pay after tax her entire paycheck for three years would go to this doctor i said you can't sign this she's like really she was so trusting very naive but you i said you can't sign this you absolutely cannot sign this this is going to be you know you'd be bankrupt over this and what's the motivation for an employer to include a liquidative damages in the contract how does that benefit them? Well, if we if you breach this contract, it's going to harm me. I don't know how much that's going to be because I don't know what the breach is going to be. We're going to agree up in front that you're not going to do that. They're trying to get the doctor to make sure that they dot every I and cross every T. A lot of contracts, that's not a major deal because they're fair to both sides. This was really unfair to the doctor. So I thought it was a, it was a landmine waiting for somebody to step on it. And would you say that most contracts have this clause, or is this somewhat of a rarity? I would say probably maybe 50%, but they won't label it liquidated damages. Usually you'll have to read the fine print, and it'll say something along the lines that, you know, if you violate this contract or you breach this contract or you fail to give us this notice, you will owe us, you know, one year salary or $50,000 or some, say, we'll say something like that. So if you see this, time to slow down, raise the red flag, and really think this through, get some great advice before signing, correct? Well, I would say in this kind of context, I would never sign this kind of agreement without consulting an attorney. It's that serious. And so, sure, it's going to cost you a couple thousand dollars maybe to have an attorney review it and give you some input. But hello, if it saves you 850000 or even not 50000 later, in my mind, it's well worth the money. Excellent. Well, I would like to think that the contract would be simple and straightforward, and perhaps the average physician would have the skill set necessary to review it. But I suspect that those gotchas, as you call them, could be so devastating, it probably makes sense to spend the money up front to make sure that you're protected. Oh, you're talking to the attorney now. So I <laughs> I think it's helpful. Now, as you know, I, I own both MD Financial and do MD Legal. So on our side, MD Financial will review contracts, but we review them from a business standpoint. How does the salary compare? How do the benefits compare? And then on more onerous um, agreements, then I refer them over to the law firm. 
Excellent advice as always, and I suspect it means if there's any concerns or anything gives you a little pause, take the time, get some expert advice, make sure you get the contract right. So I see our next topic is tail coverage. What do we need to know about this, Catherine? Right. Well, this is medical malpractice insurance, which is almost always offered by an employer. It's very rare that I see that an employer doesn't offer it. Uh, The key area here, though, where doctors can get into trouble is who's paying for the tail coverage when you leave your current employer. So here's how this situation might work. If you can kind of picture a timeline, Uh, doctors working for um, employer A and maybe some issue happens with a patient, doctor leaves, goes to work for uh, employer B. And the patient that they had under employer A wants to sue them while they're working for employer B. And the question is always, is the the medical malpractice insurance going to cover it or not? So what we like to see is that the current employer has what we call tail coverage, or at least they agree to pay for tail coverage if you leave. Um, Sometimes this is not the case. So this is definitely a situation where doctors need to be very aware. And to your point, we want to make sure that doctors are looking out for themselves because this can get very, very expensive. And my little hypothetical here, if you're with employer B, maybe you haven't even ever met with this particular patient while you've been working at employer B. Employer B's medical malpractice coverage is not going to cover you for an event that happened at a previous employer, which means the doctor himself is going to have to pay uh, for those horrible expenses, you know, should it go to litigation. So once again, look for tail coverage. Uh, I've seen situations where the new employer will actually cover the tail costs on a previous employer. So I think from a doctor's perspective, you just want to make sure you're covered, whether it's your existing employer or the new employer. So when you look at your contract, would there be an actual segment that reads tail coverage, or would that be somehow in the verbiage that a tail coverage is offered? How would you actually identify it in the contract? And then how would you know if it gives you enough protection? Oh, great questions. I think the first thing you're going to look for is who pays for the medical malpractice insurance. And they may not use the words tail coverage, but they might just say something very vague, like, we're going to cover your medical malpractice insurance. And it's at that point that the doctor needs to ask, well, tell me about this coverage. Does it have tail coverage? What does it cover? What are the limits, et cetera, to make sure that it's enough? Now, in very, very rare cases, I have doctors go out and get their own coverage on top of their employers. And that might be something for doctors to consider. But as I said, it doesn't happen very often. And you would say, again, that most contracts do offer tail coverage, or is that something you should be requesting if you don't see it specifically in the details of your contract? What kind of coverage do you have? See if they'll put it in writing. If they won't put it in writing in the contract, at least have them send you a memo outlining what kind of coverage it is so you know. Um, if they, it is not included, then it should be a negotiation point that you'd like them to include that. And just to be clear, Catherine, you're saying most times tail coverage is not included? I would say most times tail coverage is not included in the medical malpractice. But you definitely want to make sure this is included, correct? I would certainly agree. Now, once again, this is just the contracts that we've reviewed. I certainly haven't done any national surveys. Uh, I just want to make sure doctors are aware because this can be very painful. I had a colleague, they discovered by accident that doctor had taken a new job with new employer and she hadn't checked any of this stuff out and how there was going to be a claim in order for her to pay for the tail coverage. It's going to be like a $24,000 cost for her, the doctor, to have that coverage. And I would assume if you find out you need tail coverage, that's something you should have in place well in advance, something that you can't do in the event of a claim, correct? Exactly, because once you've got a claim, it's way too late. You have to have it before the claim. So this is definitely something you want in place as you're moving employers. Now, I will say with our residents and fellows, no big deal. Nobody worries about whether you had coverage when you're a resident or a fellow because they they know the training institutions have got you covered. So it's not a big deal there. But once you're in attending and you're moving from you know position to position, then it can be a major issue and can be very expensive. So once again, depending upon your specialty, 
you know, if you're in a high risk specialty, this tail coverage is going to be a lot more expensive than if you're in a, a lower risk specialty. And just to be clear, when you're thinking about purchasing malpractice coverage, if you're part of a large physician group, that offers you some degree of bargaining power and perhaps a better price rather than trying to negotiate on an individual level. Can you give us some insight there, Catherine? Right. A really good point. So obviously your your hospital, or if you're a part of a big clinic, is going to be purchasing this coverage. You'll be in, included in almost every single case. And you're right. It's got to be, I haven't looked at the coverage, but I'm sure it's much cheaper. My concern with medical malpractice coverage in general, though, is usually the limits are very low. So for instance, they might be, let's say 500,000 per occurrence up to a maximum of $3 million. Well, what that means is every occurrence in that year, the insurance could pay up to 500,000, but it maxes out at $3 million. So for some reason, your hospital gets hit with a lot of um, claims in that particular year, and your particular claim is at the end of the year, they may have already gone through their limit of $3 million, right? There may be nothing left for you. So then what happens? Well, then unfortunately, that poor physician is going to be left holding the bag, but the hospital or the employer is also left holding the bag. And with big institutions, it may not be a big deal because they've got reserves to cover this kind of thing. And although it's interesting as an attorney, I see this as a risk. As a practical matter, I've never seen this as a problem for any of our clients. It's just never happened. So I've had a number of clients get sued, but they've never gone after more than whatever the medical malpractice coverage was for them at the time. So I guess that gives us some degree of reassurance, but I can't help but think about all those newspaper headlines that report the latest and greatest, the highest amount paid out for any legal claim thus far. And that gives me pause that perhaps these policies are insufficient and therefore perhaps we should be thinking about additional malpractice insurance that we take out individually. Can you give us your thoughts on this, Catherine? So I would say most physicians probably don't have to consider it. Our message for today is don't be too alarmed. Just make sure that you read the contracts carefully and that tail coverage is included. If it's not included and you can't negotiate it, then at that point, you may consider getting some of your own. You could price it out and see if it makes sense or not. Okay, then. I think I've got it. The sky is not falling, thankfully. But the reality is that we work in a very litigious environment and tail coverage is important. So if you don't see it in your contract, be sure to make it a point of negotiation. Exactly. All right. Moving on to the next topic of bonuses. Tell us a little bit about how these are structured and what we need to know. Well, I always like the bonuses clearly spelled out in the contract. doesn't always happen, but that would be my preference. Now, sometimes these bonuses are just incomprehensible. Now, I've got a finance background, right? We do this. And I'll be frank, sometimes their uh, formulas are so complicated, I really can't figure out what the doctor can expect, really, in bonuses. So a question I always suggest that you ask, and I'm amazed how many doctors don't think to ask this, is, okay, let's take the last five doctors that you employed that were similar to me. You know, they had my years of experience, my background, et cetera. How did their bonuses pay out? And you don't need to know the exact doctor's name and how much they got paid. You just want to see a range so that you have an idea of how you can kind of plan for the future. And can we be sure that the employers are honoring the bonus program and actually making those payouts? I'm not so worried about them honoring the bonus program because I've never had anybody get promised a bonus that they didn't get. But a lot of times the uh, formulas are so complex that you don't know how realistic it is on whether you're going to actually qualify. Or or another way to phrase this when you're um, interviewing your new employers is what is it going to take for me to achieve this bonus? So it could be that you need a very, very high level of patient satisfaction, let's just say. Well, I I think, Chrissy, if we take uh, emergency med docs, they're going to have a higher level of patient satisfaction in certain geographical areas than they are in others. So when I think about patient satisfaction, I actually think about the things that the physician can control, such as how good you were at listening, how empathetic you were, how caring you were. And of course, those are all important, 
But I also know that patient satisfaction is a whole lot more, such as, was the nurse nice? Were you transported promptly to your radiology study? Did the phlebotomist cause you any discomfort during a blood draw? And when I reflect on those points and see how many things go into patient satisfaction and how little control the physician has over each piece, it sometimes gets a little overwhelming. Exactly. But you may be the brunt of it because you're kind of the face person for managing their care in that situation. That's a really, really good point. All right. So I won't pull you off topic. Getting back to bonuses, it looks like there are several types. Can you tell us a bit about those? Right. Before we get to the types, let me just go back to how they're computed. Sometimes, though, they might be computed on RVUs. They might be done on collections. They might be done on a whole bunch of other kinds of formulas. Once again, just ask more detailed questions and ask for a range. You know, doctors in your situation, what is their typical bonus? Excellent. It's good to know that those are fair questions to ask, because I would dare guess that a lot of people want to shy away from that type of questioning during the negotiation process. Really good to get it down now, because a key part of being happy in your new job, in my opinion, is not having any surprises. And one way you can avoid surprises is just to have clarity of what the expectations are. So to your point, we want to talk about types of bonuses. So uh, one is a starting bonus. What's interesting, each of these bonuses I'm talking about is frequently referred to as a sign-on bonus, but technically they really are not necessarily a sign-on. A starting bonus is something that you get paid like at your start date or maybe the first pay period after you start. So it's an encouragement for you to actually go to work with this particular firm. And once again, there could be a bonus there. Uh, Another kind that I don't see often, but there should be more of these in my mind for doctors, is a retention bonus. If you stay past a year or two years, then you get an extra bonus for being there longer. They're trying to keep you on staff. Um, Another kind of bonus is a signing bonus or a sign-on bonus. Now, what's confusing here is a sign-on bonus should be the minute you sign this contract and you send it off to that future employer, they should be sending you the check back for the bonus. But in fact, although they call it a sign-on bonus very frequently, you don't get it till you start or you don't get it till the end of your first year. And I've heard of some crazy situations. Should the physician not proceed to employment with the initial contract, that the sign-on bonus is actually due back to the employer? Is that something you're familiar with? Oh, I see that very frequently. You leave with an X period of time, you owe the entire bonus or prorated a portion of it back to the employer. So once again, this gets to, you need to know what the expectations are to make sure that you can meet them and be able to keep this kind of bonus. I had one doctor who declined to actually take the sign-on bonus because it had that kind of provision that you were talking about, because he didn't want to be stuck there if he didn't like it. He wanted the ability to walk away. Excellent. Well, there certainly is some monetary value to your freedom, And the sign-on bonus is an interesting one for me because I often see young residents lured by these high-dollar sign-on bonuses, and they are quick to sign the contract, but then find that the employment isn't exactly what makes them happy. However, now they are a little bit handicapped in walking away because they would now have to pay this very large sign-on bonus back to the employer. It can be very painful. Uh, The last bonus that I see is something, I'm I'm going to call it production bonus. Nobody likes to think of production in medicine, but it does get to maybe how many RVUs you do, what your collections are like, you know, how many patients you're seeing. And do you find that production bonuses are quite common within the contracts? Yes. Uh, But once again, sometimes they're really vague. You know, they may say, yes, you're going to be um, able to get certain bonuses, but they don't spell out for you what they are or what you're what you're required to do to get them. I prefer to have all that spelled out in writing so there's no misunderstandings. I have to agree with your point about making sure that the details of the bonus are spelled out. And I know I've shared this story with you before, but unfortunately my experience was that bonus monies were promised, the details weren't specified, and when it came time to pay the bonus money, my employer looked for every detail under the sun not to pay it, and unfortunately I was the one that lost out. Oh, that's hard. I don't see that with a lot of big organizations, but I could see with smaller ones. 
you may find some unscrupular employers. And yes, that could happen. And I hate to even put a negative thought out there, but I think it's something to have on your mindset because unfortunately, medicine is becoming increasingly lean. And as our employers are pinched to make the most out of every dollar, perhaps it would be the bonus programs that are last on the list to be properly funded. That's a really, really good point. So by and large, I would say bonuses are almost always completely discretionary. So even if they put in there, this is our typical bonus, there's usually a a provision someplace that says they're discretionary. So if they have a bad year, there may not be any money for bonuses. Would you even suggest, Catherine, that if you don't see bonuses outlined in your contract that you could ask if it's even a possibility? Absolutely. Um, Just remember what my mama used to say, if you don't ask, you don't get. But if you feel like you'd like more, maybe they won't give on the base pay, but giving on bonuses might be a negotiation. Excellent. I was curious about the retention bonus. Admittedly, that's not something that I have as much experience with, but when I reflect on it, it certainly makes sense, especially when I think about how much it costs to hire a physician, how long it takes to have a physician become fully functional and operating well within your system. Do you see that offered quite commonly? And can you tell us a little bit about how those are structured? Well, I would say I see them very rarely. Um, and the structure is usually just a dollar amount. You know, if, if you're here at year one or year two, whatever, then we're going to give you an extra bonus of X. Um, I'm starting to use them in my own financial planning practice because, to your point, it takes me a full year to train um, a paralegal or what we call client service managers to not do 100% of their job, but to do 80%, the best of them, only 80%. And if they leave me after a year, which happens. So one of the things we started doing was offering bonuses. The longer they're here, the bigger their retention bonuses. The other thing I really like about the retention bonus is it seems like a very nice way to make your employees feel valued. I was laughing about a comment I saw on Twitter the other day when the statement was, I know my employer values me because they gave me this free pen. (laughs) Now, of course, it was said in jest. However, I would dare guess that a retention bonus is always appreciated by the employee and is yet another way to make them feel valued in your organization. Right. I think it's very important, although the studies do show that a lot of employees aren't just looking for the money. It's really more about recognition, being appreciated, being valued. Right. There are many, many things that leads to an employee feeling valued, and hopefully a retention bonus is just a small part of that. And at the end of the day, we all want a highly functioning organization where everyone is happy. Okay, then. What have you got for us next, Catherine? Well, I thought we should talk a little bit about how to negotiate, because this is frankly, I would say, out of all what things we're talking about, maybe the weakest part of this whole process. We may have mentioned before, when I studied my own clients and compared them to national studies, I found a lot of times the women were making less than men, even when we accounted for the mommy track, even if we accounted for specialties. And I came to believe in working with our own female doctors that they just didn't take the time to negotiate. And would you say that happens because people simply just don't take the time or perhaps don't have the skill set? Tell us about the contributing factors when we fail to negotiate. I would say check, check, and check. And, you know, I may have mentioned in a previous podcast, I think we did, we talked about how I used to do these meetings for just female doctors. It was so fun. And I noticed that the women doctors were just much more engaged when it was just women than when it was women and men doctors. For some reason, they just held back a little bit more. So there may be some cultural things going on where women just don't feel as comfortable uh, negotiating concerns you've got um, and do this. And you can do it in a gentle, respectful way that I think you can do it within your comfort zone, but it really makes a difference because And nowadays, almost every employer has left some money on the table. They expect you to negotiate. And if you don't negotiate, you're going to be leaving some money behind. So can you give us some tips or perhaps some verbiage that we can use so that we can better negotiate for ourselves? Absolutely. So let me go through a couple of steps here. I preface it by doing some overriding thoughts. We have a statement or uh, a saying in finance, which is he who has the gold makes the rules. We call that the golden rule of finance. And I know that physicians are thinking 
this new employer, they've got the goals. They're going to be paying me. They can make the rules. And to be frank, that there is some of that. But we're in a very interesting economic uh, phase now with physicians. There's not enough of you to go around. And that means you have gold too. You have something that's incredibly valuable that those future employers want. And you need to make sure that that you understand that and that mindset going in, that alone helps, I think, sets the stage for better negotiations. Excellent. I really like that because, of course, it's always important to have a positive mindset. I'm curious about if your negotiating power changes by where you are in training. Does it seem to matter if you're a new resident just out? Or perhaps are you in a better position if you're in a seasoned attending with lots of experience behind you? You know, I think it depends. And a lot of this goes to specialty and part of the country. So a couple years ago, I had a lot of pediatric uh, radiologists. These poor docs could not find jobs. Now, about three or four years later, pediatric radiologists, honestly, you can practically write your own ticket any place you want. You know, so things get very cyclical. Likewise, this year, I had a, a pulmonary doctor who was chief, and he's absolutely fantastic and wonderful, and he had what he thought was going to be three or four job offers. They all evaporated. So it just kind of goes with, I think, the, the time, the specialty, the part of the country. So again, it speaks to doing your homework. Make sure you know your value before you go into the negotiating room. Totally. It was particularly clear to me for this pulmonary doc. I did not realize that that market was so tight now because it's very hard to get into pulmonary, right? It's one of the specialties that's extremely difficult to get accepted in. And so I was flabbergasted that it was so tight that they weren't going to, he wasn't going to be able to get a job. And this is a person who really distinguished himself. So know your market because if in his case, he's got less negotiating power because he's got less gold. And if he pushed too hard on a contract, I'm not saying he did this, but if he would, they're very likely to say, look, we've got three other pulmonary docs here who are willing to work for less and do more overnight shifts or whatever. They're just not going to you know, make an offer to you. I have to laugh. It almost sounds like a government contract where it's awarded to the lowest bidder. Exactly. And there is some of that because it's becoming, as you know, medicine's more and more becoming a business. I have to agree with you on that one. So it goes to the point that you have to do your research. Can you remind us again, Catherine, of those websites that you referenced previously, the ones that you could go to to learn what kind of salaries physicians in your area are earning? Well, two I use a lot are salary.com and glassdoor.com. And sometimes I'll just Google, you know, pediatric radiologist Michigan, and you can kind of see what Michigan doctors with that specialty are making. Perfect. So go in the door with your homework done. Exactly. Homework. I know people don't want to do the homework, but it's really helpful. So anyway, next um, thing I want you to keep in mind, and I've actually had doctors take out a yellow pad and I make them write the statement down. He who speaks first loses. Catherine, you're going to have to tell us what that means. What that means. I've actually lectured to financial advisors about how to keep their clients happy and how to avoid getting sued. And one of the things I talk about is how to diffuse the unhappy client. So when you're negotiating for, call it a new salary, a better salary, they offer you 250, you think the going rate's 275. You'd never go in and say, so Christy, as my future employer, you know, I really was hoping you could in increase that salary to a base pay of 275 because you've spoken first, you're going to lose. You don't know, but they, they may have actually had in their budget 300000 for your going salary. And by you saying, oh, I really want 275 you've just lost $25,000 by speaking first. So is it that you put a concrete number out there or is that what it takes to start the negotiation? Exactly. I wouldn't put a concrete number out there. So let's just talk about salaries in, in general. I'll use my example. It's 250. You've done your homework. You know the going rate for a starting doc or attending in this area is going to be, you know, 275. You might say something like, you know, I've been looking at my homework and in this area, in this part of Atlanta, starting rate for the specialty is about 275,000. Here's my research. And then you shut up. You don't say, give me 275000 You don't say, I want 275000 You just say, oh, I just noticed that this is the going rate. And then you shut up and see what they say. Excellent. So learning to ask those open-ended questions and also being comfortable with the pauses 
that's perhaps something you could practice in your daily routine so when it comes time to negotiate, that's not uncomfortable to you and you're ready to make the most of it. So when you're negotiating using those dead silences, that pregnant pause is huge because they're going to want to fill in the space just the way I did. And that's going to be helpful to you in your negotiations. So you have to have an idea of what you want out of the negotiation, but it's important to leave it vague, important to include the pregnant pauses so that your employer has an opportunity to offer up additional resources in your direction. It's hugely important. It's the reason I had a clients actually write it at the top of their legal pads because they're going to have lots of notes when they go in to do these discussions and write in big letters, he who speaks first loses. All right. So be comfortable with the silence. That's the take-home point. Exactly. Or another way to think about this is don't offer up the solution. All right. Number three, uh, very important to do this in person or at the very least over the phone. I'm amazed at how many doctors nowadays want to do this by email. No, you never do it by email because of course they're going to write back and go, no, don't, you know. So I would suggest if you can face-to-face absolutely works best. If you can't do it face-to-face, then uh, do a video conference, FaceTime, um, and maybe over the telephone. Perfect. So even in this digital age where everything is done remotely and not on a personal level, there is still role for face-to-face negotiations. So make sure you do it in person. Right. And it's easier for you to see the body language um, and kind of assess how far you should go on certain points. Just a t- I think it's just a ton easier. Now, next, uh, never agree on the spot. I don't care what their offer is. You never sign it and then walk out the door. Take some time to think about it, do your research, you know, review it with your advisors or your friends and counselors, and then get back to them. So often they're going to tell you, I need an answer by next week, which really ticks me off because doctors believe that that's really true, Christy, that they really do need an answer by next week. No, they don't really need an answer by next week. They're doing that to put pressure on you so you'll sign it so you'll, you know, you'll feel like you're under the gun and you've got to take take it. Yes, because when I think about the interviewing season, it seems those negotiations are often done a year ahead of time, but I suspect that it takes work off the employer's plate. Check the box. They're done. Yeah, that could be, but I think it's part of their diabolical negotiation tactics. They try to put you on the wrong foot by making you nervous and put pressure and trying to get you to move ahead very quickly instead of thinking about it. Excellent. I like that. So don't respond to time pressures. Give yourself plenty of time to review all the details of the contract to make sure you've got it right before you move forward. Exactly. So next in my list of suggestions is when you're going through the contract, make a list of all the issues there. And some of them are going to just be questions. Like you're not going to change their uh, retirement benefits plan because it's there for everybody. But maybe you've got questions about how it works. So you've got a list of questions and then you're going to have another list of things that are important for you to try to sweeten the deal, try to make better. My next step after you've gone through and you've made your list is try to rank these. And some important items might, sure, it might be base pay, it might be bonuses, but it also could be things like time for academic research, uh, vacations, those kinds of issues. So once again, you need to do your homework. Make sure you have all the questions at hand so you can ask your employer and be sure that they know that you're interested in the job, but you're also working to sweeten the deal in your favor. Exactly. So you wouldn't say, I want time to negotiate this offer. You would say, you know, I've been through it. I've got a number of, I've got some questions. When do you have time to, for a face-to-face meeting or phone call to go over them? So you're going to tee it up that you've got questions. And true, you do have questions. If you don't, you better go through and find two or three things you can pretend that you've got some questions about. Okay. So, um, and once again, you've ranked these. This kind of varies from doctor to doctor. Usually salaries at the top, but not always. Sometimes they're more worried about time off or other issues. So if it's salary, as you mentioned before, you might say, you know, done your homework and you've noticed that the going rate is not really 250. It's, it's higher than that. It's about 275. Or you could say, you know, is there any room to negotiate there? Now, you'll notice that I didn't say I want 275 or I want more money. I just said, is there any room to negotiate? Sounds good, because then you can see what they have to offer. And then you just have to pick through their menu of offerings to see what's best for you. Exactly. And keep in mind, the savvy negotiator on the other side is going to come back to you and say, well, doctor, what do you want? 
And so you have to be really careful that you don't go, oh, I sure I didn't speak first the first time, but they're, I don't want them to trap me into speaking first the second time. So then you could turn it back again and go, you know, well, what is the range that you guys usually have for this position? <laughs> you know, don't, once again, you don't give them an exact answer. You just keep turning it back as many ways as you can to let them come up with the solution. So it almost sounds like a little role play or a little mental rehearsal would really help you before going into the negotiation extremely helpful. In fact, if anything, you should be thinking about what are the common things they're going to say and you need to be prepared in advance for what your answers need to be. Admittedly, I like that idea a lot. I feel like much of medicine is mental rehearsal, particularly in the emergency room where we're often thrust into situations that are quite uncommon or atypical and we have to be ready to act and have a plan of action. This seems to me very similar, and perhaps using that same skill set that you applied to medicine can now behoove you in the negotiating room. Absolutely, and more crucial, because it can have such a big impact on your future. Exactly. Specifically, when you make the comment that it's important to get the negotiation correct up front, you have to do this work. I think about a retention bonus, and of course, it would never work if you went to your employer about a year into your contract and said, hey, how about you pay me a retention bonus? Exactly, because you've got to get that up front. You're in a honeymoon phase, so you have to make the most of that. One question I did want to ask you is specifically about student loan debt. At this current time, our graduates are coming out with just astronomical amounts of debt, and it seems that your employer can often help pay for that. Any thoughts on how to make that part of the negotiation? Right. I, that's a, could be on your list of things. If they don't offer it, you might uh, you might say, well, you know, I find it's very getting more and more common for employers to offer uh, student loan forgiveness. Once again, the very pregnant pause. <laughs> You're waiting for them to respond. Now, keep in mind, for most doctors, this is going to be a taxable event, but that's okay. It's extra money. You know, it's all helps pay down the student loans. And do you have any thoughts on how to structure that? Or do you find that it's so variable that you just want to wait and see what your employer might offer you? Yes, it's usually a bonus that comes out yearly, you know, maybe the first couple of years. So once in a great, great while, I'll have some institution that can, that for whatever reason, they're in a geographical area that's underserved, maybe that they're able to do this so that it's not a taxable event, but that's very, very rare. All right. So know that it's an option when you're in the negotiating room. And if it's important to you, make sure that you include it. Right. Other things that I see negotiated can be things like vacation pay. I've had contracts, these poor doctors, they only get two weeks vacation. That's crazy. You put in way too many hours, you need more vacation. Once again, do your homework, find out what the going rate is. Um, CME. Oh my gosh. I saw one contract. I think the CME allowance was $1,000. Well, come on, you can't do anything in CME for $1,000. So you want to make sure that that's more in the going, going rate. Could be other things included. Will they cover, some employers will cover actually financial planning expenses. So we occasionally have the employer that will pay our financial planning fees. Could be a whole list of things. Keep in mind that things that are like benefits, uh, particularly um, retirement plans or medical malpractice insurance, health, um, disability insurance, Life insurance, all of those things are not negotiable. They're the same for every doctor. There's no point in you going in and trying to sweeten that deal because it's not going to work. Okay, good to know. And again, make sure that those are clearly outlined in your contract. Don't allow it to be just a verbal commitment. Exactly. Well, whenever you can. So keep in mind, and we haven't talked about this, almost every contract I've seen has a provision in there somewhere that says this is the entire contract. Anything that we've turned told you verbally, anything that's in an email doesn't count. If it's not in this contract or a signed addendum, signed by both parties, it doesn't count. So occasionally I'll run into physicians who will say, well, you know, they told me in an email that they promised me I could do 50% research and it didn't turn out that way. Well, it doesn't count. You can't go back to them and hold their toes to the fire because it wasn't in this written agreement. Good to keep in mind. In fact, this podcast was filled with so many great tips. What should we keep in mind, Catherine? I think the uh, the key thing, as you've mentioned, is do your homework. You have to go in prepared. And I would say that this issue is so big. Have somebody you trust help you review the contract just to get an extra set of eyes on it so that you don't miss anything. 
And then I would never take just any contract because I believe every contract can be sweetened, even if it's just a little bit. There's always some room to make it a little bit better. Excellent. Thank you so much for all those tips. This is unfortunately a topic which is so rarely covered in our medical education that my hope is we've better prepared our listeners to be ready for that next negotiation. My pleasure as always, Christine. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in and spending part of your day with us. We look forward to having Catherine join us again next month, and we hope that you'll join us again too. Take care. With both hands, then make a stash. Absolutely. And more crucial because it can have such a big impact on your future. So I absolutely, I'm a big believer in the mental rehearsing too. Exactly. Because you've got to get that up front. You're in a honeymoon phase. So you have to make the most of that.
Right. I, that's a, could be on your list of things. If they don't offer it, you might uh, you might say, well, you know, I find it's very getting more and more common for employers to offer uh, student loan forgiveness. Once again, the very pregnant pause. <laughs> You're waiting for them to respond. Now, keep in mind, for most doctors, this is going to be a taxable event, but that's okay. It's extra money. You know, it all helps pay down the student loans. So that's definitely something you should consider. Yes, it's usually a bonus that uh, comes out yearly, you know, maybe the first couple of years. So uh, once in a great, great while, I'll have some institution that can, uh, that for whatever reason, they're in a geographical area that's underserved, maybe that they're able to do this so that it's not a taxable event, but that's very, very rare. Right. Now, other things that I see negotiated can be things like vacation pay. I've had contracts, these poor doctors, they only get two weeks vacation. That's crazy. You put in way too many hours, you need more vacation. Once again, do your homework, find out what the going rate is. Um, so vacation pay might be one. C, uh, CME. Oh, my gosh. Patients I saw one with contract. really no warning. So you really have to be prepared to move well, through very quickly. You can't do anything. And in my opinion, the only way to do that is to successfully so sure that that's rehearse going, that mentally beforehand rate. so that you um, already have your whole plan of action in place included, and can just now um, start with execution. Some this seems to me to be a very similar situation. We occasionally have an employer that will pay our financial planning fees could be a whole list of things. Keep in mind that things that are like benefits, uh, particularly um, retirement plans. And it sounds like it's so important to get the negotiations right up front, because if you think about retention bonuses, which you just mentioned a little bit ago here, you would never go to your employer a year in and say, hey, I think a retention bonus is a good idea. How about you pay out? Exactly. Well, whenever you can. One specific so question mind, I, mean, I did ask is, what do you think about student loan forgiveness? I know that that's, again, a big stressor for our residents coming out with just astronomical amounts of debt. It seems that often that's part of the contract. Do you have any experience or insight there for us? So occasionally I'll run into physicians who will say, well, you know, they told me in an email that they promised me I could do 50% research and it didn't turn out that way. Well, it doesn't count. You can't go back to them and hold their toes to the fire because it wasn't in this written agreement. Oh, thank you. I think that uh, the key thing, as you've mentioned, is do your homework. Excellent. You and do you have any thoughts prepare. on how to structure that? You have to know or do you find that is. it's so variable you just and want to wait and I would see what say your that employer this issue may is offer so big. you? Have somebody you trust help you review the contract just to get an extra set of eyes on it so that you don't miss anything. And then I would never take just any contract because I believe every contract can be sweetened, even if it's just a little bit. There's always some room to make it a little bit better. Okay. So no, it's an option on the negotiating table. And if it's important to you, don't hesitate to ask for it when you're doing these contract negotiations. My pleasure as always, Christy.
Okay. Good to know. And of course, you want to make sure that those are clearly outlined in your contract, not just a verbal commitment. All right. Well, lots of good tips there, Catherine. What are the take-homes for us? What should we be reflecting on as we listen to this podcast and go about our day? Excellent. Well, thank you for these tips. I think this is a topic that's so very rarely covered and certainly not part of our organized medical training. So this is some information that will help empower you as you move forward in your medical career and negotiate that next job. And a special thanks to you, Catherine, once again, for your wonderful insights and experiences to help us be better prepared for the future. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. We much appreciate you giving us a chance to help us. Let me re-record that. (laughs) Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We very much appreciate you joining us. And hopefully this offered you some benefit. We wish you a wonderful, productive day and look forward to hearing, look forward to spending some time with you next month. Take care. All right, I'll stop recording.